Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can say whatever you want, your name and what you are on The Office. My name is Claire Scanlon, and I was an editor on The Office from season five for five years through the finale. Oh, my and God, I... that was so long. Okay. Because <laughs> I can say whatever no. I want. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. All right, sorry. I'll say. My name is Claire Scanlon, and I was an editor on The Office. <laughs> Hello, everyone. That just made me laugh. Uh, Welcome back to The Office Deep Dive, where we dive deep into The Office, as the title indicates. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I have the absolute pleasure and privilege of bringing you my conversation with the one and only Claire Scanlon. Oh, she's just great. Just wait. Um, Claire was an editor on our show, a great one. In fact, she won an Emmy for editing the final episode. But one thing that was so special about The Office, and I know I've talked about this, but but you really, you need to understand just how rare it is. There was a, a synergy, a real synergy between all of the members of the cast and of the crew. Everyone talked to everyone. Everyone had input and value. Everyone could try on a new hat if they wanted. Even I, a, a, a lowly actor, I, I could walk right up to the writer's room and tell them what I thought about something or the editor's area, the editing bay, as we call it, and have real conversations with Claire 
or with our other amazing editor, Dave Rogers, about the show. So ideas came from all different people all of the time, right up until the very end. So the fact that Claire and I even have a relationship, her as an editor and me as an actor, that speaks to the extra special specialness of our set. And speaking of people taking on different roles, well, Claire also directed a couple of episodes of The Office. Yes, her first ever directing job, which, of course, has launched her into a full-blown directing career. Yeah, Claire is kind of a big deal. If you watch television, there is no doubt you have seen something she has done. Maybe The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Mindy Project or her recent film, Set It Up. Oh, and did I mention that she won an Emmy for editing the finale of The Office? She's just too good. She's too good at, at everything. Anyway, you will understand how stoked I was to get to see her and to talk to her. It was truly my pleasure. Here is my friend, the incredibly multi-talented and impossibly brilliant Claire Scanlon. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before Always about golfing. I are you think. working hard outside? <laughs> I mean, am I really that red? You are. You're just the... very tan. Notably well, that's tan. That's why I was right all along. You well. Maybe. <laughs> um. Oh my gosh! How are you? Good. Good. Really good. I was like teasing. I was like this because in the emails, like conveniently located. <laughs> I'm like convenient for whom? Greg. <laughs> Greg and Paul. For Greg. Greg and Paul. Yeah. I brought a ton of pictures too. In you case did? You, yeah, yeah. It was really actually fun going through. I haven't, I, weirdly, I have a lot of pictures of you. Really? I was just like you socially. You were obsessed with me. I was. It's, yeah. tr- it's time to tell you the truth that I was totally obsessed with you and stalked you. You just didn't know and I did it very surreptitiously. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Let me see your pictures. I know. I'm pulling, I'm pulling them up right now. The office. Um, there's one. Just That's like a wrap. Some oh, do you and Dave and you in the middle? Yeah, <laughs> this is a, like one of our storyboards, you know, just like classic, yeah, office storyboard. Oh my That's god, that's the very last mix session that's really? for the finale. Yeah, that's Matt Zone, in case you couldn't recognize that him. That is, yeah, that's Colonel Matt Zone. Sanders. Colonel, he was Colonel Sanders. Oh, we have a lot. I have a Wait, lot. Who's the, is that, was Sarah, that Sarah? Levy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which I, having had just worked on, I'm trying to be trying to be very, be very diplomatic about this, but having just worked on another handheld show, it makes you really appreciate Matt and Sarah's work so yes. much because it's such a skill, it's such an art, and so few people can do it well. So few. Well, it's crazy because they came from reality. Yes, but they they knew how to construct the story. They knew not to go to you guys until you started speaking, which is such a balletic, artful thing that they never got credit for because no one appreciates 
the storytelling they were doing and understanding the level of difficulty, except other camera operators that would come and work on the show and fail. The editors really knew it, and the other people who tried and couldn't do it would, like, cut to you and be like, no, he, Kevin hasn't spoken yet. You can't cut to Kevin because how does the documentary filmmaker know that Kevin's going to speak? Right. I talked with Matt about this, also, and I'd kind of forgotten about this. Really, the only way they cheated was they would have us do handles occasionally. Right, yes. So, like, Michael? Yes. Just to give just a, them a reason to a get reason there. to get over there. But always looking for the reason. Right, right. That he knew to do that was awesome. Do you feel like, was editing on The Office more or less difficult because of the way that it was shot? Because of the- It was incredibly difficult. It was not easier than a, a more studio-style Hollywood, typical Hollywood sitcom or single-cam show. Much, much more difficult. But that said, you had so much creativity and so much leeway. I think because Greg and Paul and Jen really respected the editor, the act of editing, the storytelling of editing, they gave so much leeway. So, and they, and especially Greg was not reverential with his scripts. And to him himself as well, like when he would come into post, he'd be like, take that talking head from act one and put it in three. And I remember doing casual Fridays and it was kind of too many storylines, way too long. And I was like, I, you know, this one needs help. I was like, I don't know. You know, I had cut this behemoth, you know, towards the end, they were all getting to be like 40 minute long episodes and you're cutting a show out of the show. But this one in particular, I felt like. I don't know what we're going to do. And he was just genius. Like there was one Kelly Kapoor story that just became like almost like two shots. And it was just like a little pop. And it was so good as a result of it. And he just moved stuff every which way. And once you see that your boss is doing that, it kind of gives you a freer hand to do it yourself. Right. Because I came on season five. Right. So that's a great point. So before (laughs) you started, you were – Editing documentaries. This was the very first scripted television show I ever edited, (laughs) period. So I like literally went from no scripted to the number one company. (laughs) It was just like, wow, trial by fire. First one, go for it. I knew that if I didn't do a good job, I wouldn't get asked back. (laughs) It was that simple. Right. And Dave Rogers was amazing. And he always would watch my cuts. But initially, especially with me, like, this is what we do. Stay, don't cut away. Don't pre-lab. Stay on the joke till the end, you know, like that was just something it would take kind of just like a more um, seasoned person to know. But then in other ways, I think because of my background, I was very comfortable with all of the shooting style. Whereas I think other editors that would come on would be like, whoa, what the heck? Right. Um, I remember my job interview, Jen Salata, Mike Schur, Paul Lieberstein, and Greg Daniel. So not an intimidating group at all to be interviewing me. (laughs) I literally like almost knew too little to be intimidated. Like, I, I should have been shaking <laughs> with that group. <laughs> like, but I almost was just like, I knew Paul socially from in our 20s. I knew him when he was writing Clarissa Explains It All. Oh, you knew Paul. I knew Paul Pers- personally. Just, okay. So what happened was a good friend of mine, Grady Cooper, who ended up editing Koi Pond, um, he said, hey, Claire, I heard there's a spinoff of The Office. Would you mind putting my name in the hat and giving it to Paul? And I called Paul and I said, hey, my friend wants to put his name in the hat for the new show. And he's like, well, what about you? And I was like, what? And he's like, what about you? Don't you want to put your name in the hat? You're an editor too. And I said, 
Okay. I never, it just didn't even cross my mind that I would even have a chance. So Paul was conspicuously quiet in that meeting because I knew him, right. you know, socially. And I'd met Greg and Suzanne at Paul's birthday party one year, I think. Um, and to me, they were like the grownups, <laughs> which is so funny. <laughs> they were like the grownups. They had a kid already. Like right. I was in my 20s and they were just so mature. They were so mature. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's the dad when I went into the interview. Like he's, a, he's a dad. And so met with them. I said, I don't have any narrative editing background. I don't have, I'm not, this isn't my forte. And I come from documentary. In fact, I've worked with a lot of your camera operators because we were all under the same roof at Mark Burnett Productions. And um, Greg's like, that's a plus that you've never done narrative. I, I And I do come from documentary. I don't really come as much from reality. I'd done tons of docs before. And weirdly, docs on comedians. Um, yes. I gravitated towards like Carol Burnett, A Woman of Character, Cary Grant, A Class Apart, Bob Newhart, Unbuttoned. And it didn't, I didn't set out with comedy in mind when I was, I just kind of veered that way. Like, just like, I don't know. It just kind of fell on my lap that way. So Greg was very keen on the fact that I hadn't come up through the system. And I can see now in retrospect why that was an attractive quality just in that you do thwart the script structure, which is like the script is Bible and no other showrunner lets you do that. Like, can you right. imagine being on another show and saying, oh, I put that in Act 3, <laughs> even though you wrote it in Act 1. But Greg, too, was also very reverential to the script on set. You know, if a director didn't shoot the words, he was pissed. But alts, fun runs, improvs, great. But you better have gotten at least one or two takes with the scripted. And then in post, he didn't care. Like in post, he's like, let me see it the way it was written. Okay, now let's throw everything up in the air and start over again, which was so liberating. And I think that's also what led to just a, a whole level of another layer of comedy that other shows didn't have that opportunity for. Like, you couldn't have done what we did with the B-roll and the talking. I mean, you could take an, a show that was way too long. If it was too much exposition, you just had someone do a talking head. And then you could delve right into the right. scene, mid-scene. You could just get rid of so much of the shoe leather. So it was just such an unusual show that way. And I think, obviously, that mockumentary style worked because it worked for Parks and Rec and Modern Family quite well. You know, other shows really right. were able to take that on and move forward with it. Yes. I mean, I don't know that I would say better than The Office, but I would just right. say it was clearly a format that worked in comedy and right. other comedies stemmed from that. Right. I think that for me, what's interesting is that we had rules in terms of how the camera worked things that we were not allowed to break. Randall's talked about like, no, I'm not going to do a shot if I can't physically get it. If we have two right. cameras and one camera is shooting from right behind Steve, then we can't shoot Steve front on or we would see the camera. Right, right. And he yeah. talked about one of Greg's sort of adages early on was everything that makes it harder makes it better. You know, if the angle wasn't perfect and you didn't have everybody's face I think that led to, yeah, it led to the voyeurism and the realness of it. And I think the shows after The Office that emulated Yeah, it, no, Parks and Rec didn't quite do it the same. Which is fine. Yeah, it's no, not, no. They didn't do it. And I think Modern Family, I, I don't I think- did a Modern Family. I directed one and I remember going in. And, you know, it's essentially 
a construct that very heavily borrowed some, you know, from the office. I think they would Elements. all be very yes. comfortable saying oh, that. Of course. And I remember being like, well, let's get an over of cam doing this and this. And we don't do overs. It's basically a proscenium. It's a multicam just with no audience and that you have two cameras only just shooting a semicircle. It's just, it was a very different way of shooting. Very proscenium, like being on stage. You know? But they also don't acknowledge that the camera is there, no. except in the talking so, heads. Yeah, yeah, in the talking heads. I feel like Phil Dumphy sometimes just stares at the camera, but not like guilty. I feel like he's done that a couple times, but I'm no expert on Modern Family. I did one. Right. <laughs> so, but I, I do think that, well, I think there were so many special things about The Office that are unlike other ones that have used that. You know, I think there was a willingness to be ugly. I think that's why the camera operators and the DPs never got acknowledged. It, nobody was going out of their way to be not under fluorescent lights. I mean, it was not a pretty set. Right. And if it was, it would have been weird. So do you think they didn't get appreciated because they- So I feel like, so I work with director of photographies all the time, and you always want them on your side, yet at the same time, it's a constant battle with comedy. When I come onto a project, my goals, my objectives are almost diametrically opposed to what the DP's job is. The DP's job, especially if there's a woman in the scene, is to make her beautiful. Nothing else matters. The co- nothing. Whereas when you said you had Randall in here and you were talking about Sone, they understood and accepted the world of the office. And the goal was comedy. Whereas I find myself having to say, I need this scene cross-covered. I've got two comedy giants, fill in the blank. On, on The Office, it was everybody was a comedy giant. So I have two comedy giants. And I need, I can't anticipate what they're going to do and say. Like, I need that coverage. What if one does something and there's an electricity in the take and you cannot recreate that? I don't care. When cutting the Mindy Project pilot, it was Ed and Mindy in a scene. And they did all this beautiful studio style. But Ed and Mindy were riffing and doing great fun runs. And I was screwed, you know? I was right. screwed. So I'm always pushing, especially when there's such strong comedy people to cross cover and a DP will always fight a typical DP that doesn't buy into the comedy and the joy of what it is to shoot comedy will always fight. But she's got to look beautiful. She's got to be lit this way. And it's always she for the most part. It's like, I don't know where it's taught in cinematography school that all women must be beautiful always at all times. Right. Like it's evil. Like, Carol Burnett never adhered to that. And she was the number one person on television throughout the 70s. Like, think about Eunice. Eunice was hideous. (laughs) And she was the first to, like, make fun of her aesthetics. And yet she could come out every evening and do her Q&A and be gorgeous in a Bob Mackie gown. You know? So, like, you knew she could bring it if she wanted to be beautiful. But where's the fun in that? I, I don't know. It's a struggle. It's 2020. And it's... Truly a conversation I have to have every time, right. you know? So I, I just, you caught me on a tear on something that I feel very passionately about. And I think coming up through the office where it was a given, oh, well, this doesn't look that great. Well, who cares? They're hilarious. Like, right. I don't care, <laughs> right. you know? Well, that's something that I think, well, quite obviously, the face of television in a way began to change with our show. Yeah. And I also think the egalitarian nature of The Office was something wonderful and desperately needed. And I think what was so wonderful is how all the characters just very slyly and almost, it just seemed like so organically. Like it just seemed that you sort of just started to fall in love with 
the regular guy and the regular girl, you know? So like, and on the office, the regular guy or the regular girl could be Stanley and it could be Oscar. Right. And I think this was a time when you weren't seeing that much diversity in primetime television, especially in comedy. But see, it's interesting what you're saying right now. It never felt intentional. No, that's what I'm saying. I think it was like, well, I said slyly, but I don't know that it was Greg or your intentions, the writer's intention to be like, let's make America love the everyman. This wasn't like Willie Loman time. You know, I don't think that that was their agenda. I do know, and I'm sure Greg's talked about the differences between season one and season two and the mandate, because I think that was huge, you know, humanizing Michael in a way that you needed to from season one. And I think even though the mandate was specifically directed at Michael, this humanitarianism kind of slipped down to all of the characters. Yes, that is true. And what? yours with Holly, of course, is a famous one. But like even someone as arch as Angela, once in a while just seeing that glimpse of vulnerability, and you show me vulnerability, I'm on board with that character for life. And I think The Office did that with every single person practically on the show. Like, I remember I remember when Ellie came on. She came on just a little after me. And so we were kind of like the new girls. And I didn't know how you guys introduced new characters. I didn't know, like, the writers just let them flounder. <laughs> right. And they waited for the actor to show them who they were. And it either worked or it didn't. Right. <laughs> Obviously, with Ellie Kemper, it worked. But I remember cutting Secretary's Day. And she had a scene where Michael took her, like, Michael was very resistant, but was told, you got to take your secretary out to lunch on Secretary's Day. It's the rule. And then she has a meltdown. And I remember thinking, like, oh, she's going to make it. Because I didn't know. Like, I didn't hadn't seen much of her work before that. She was given, like, hi, I'm Aaron. You know, it was a great scene. And she was definitely driving it. And he was the reactor to everything that she was doing. And she gave him great stuff to work with. And in this, I was like, she's got the chops she can play with Michael. I mean, she can play with Steve Carell, so she's going to make it. So I think that it was a very intimate... I remember when Kathy Bates came on, she was... I I hope this is okay to say, but like we were cutting her first few takes and her voice was a little warbly. She was so nervous. Yeah. And she told you guys. like, I'm, And everyone was like, you're a freaking Oscar winner. How are you nervous to come play with us? You know, this is a low... This is a nice... She's like, you don't get it. You don't get it. And I think, I feel like even, I don't know that any of us got it, because it was popular. And I knew it was good. I knew it made me feel something in my heart. But just this whole, like, kids watching it now, and I mean, I can only imagine what it's like to be in your shoes, like, not being able to walk down the street at all, even more so than when it was on the air. No, it's totally. weird. It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think... By the way, it, of course, it's she's Kathy Bates. It wore off. You know, right. she's not yeah, the course. one that you see on TV. <laughs> yes. The, the episodes don't have that. But I just remember being bowled over by that and how, how it seemed so easy from the inside and then coming in from the outside. Well, how was different. it for you when you came in? I mean, you know, for, I, don't, I, don't, I, I can speak to this. There were two hires. You probably don't know this. But season five, they hired two editors, me and another one. And without me really getting it, because it was so new to me, I just thought, oh, well, if we're all good, we'll all just stay and we'll go in the next season. I'm so dumb, like not realizing (laughs) like, they're just going to go with one. This is a test. It's a survivor. It was awful. (laughs) Like in retrospect, I'm so glad I was ignorant of it. And my very first season, season five, 
um, the episode I did with Paul Feig was nominated for an Emmy for Best Editing. Yes. So like, boom, I've never done narrative before and I get my first narrative. I mean, like, it's so unfair because I feel like I came into the most popular comedy <laughs> and then I got nominated for Best Editing. But like, I did not even, I was like, when I realized that it was kind of a, it was going to be one or the other, I was so grateful that I got nominated for an Emmy because I felt like if I hadn't, and the other one had, oh, then right. how do you not, like, I still think they would have hired me, but like, that would have been harder to explain. Like, wait, how do you not go with the person that got you an Emmy nomination? It was just like very, all good luck happened that year. It was right. kind of bonkers. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So you learn to edit scripted shows on The Office, but really coming from, you know, documentaries, specifically comedy documentaries, this felt comfortable. Yeah. And also, by the way, like that same camaraderie that led to such a strong ensemble, it extended through. I remember talking to John about this one time and we were just sitting, I think he directed an episode. You know, I I was ahead, so I would come to set and be like, John, I think you need to get this shot. You know, like, you need to get this, because otherwise, how do we... It was the bulldozer. Rain was taking a bulldozer in the warehouse and smashing it oh, okay. into the wall. And you needed the reverse. And and I was like, I think you need that reverse. And we were in there, and, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no ego. Like, it was fine for me to tell John that he needed this shot. Like, I would come to set a lot. Dave would come to set a lot. And there was like, that's not normal. Like, that you always are inviting that. By the way, I always ask the editor to come to set. Why wouldn't I want an extra pair of eyes that might be catching something? Because I'm in the thick of it with 500 other questions. Like, why wouldn't I want someone having my back? It's just a lovely thing to have. It's not about ego or power being an auteur. There's no such thing, first of all. But with John, we were cutting his episode, and I remember just being like, this is such a cool place to work. Like, uh, being just truly grateful. And I was like... I am happy to come in here every day. And I was like, he's like, yeah. He's like, there's not one person like that you want to like put your head down when you see them walking down the hall. He's like, there's not one person that I'm like, oh, avoid. Like where you're like in high school or your first job or something where you're like, oh, that person sucks. He's like, there's not one person. There were over a hundred people there and he couldn't come. And we, by the way, we were totally gossiping. Like he could have told me, like there was no reason, there's no, I mean, I wouldn't tell this story if he actually named somebody, obviously. (laughs) But like, we were like, come on, there's gotta be somebody. Like everyone had their charm, you know, like everyone had the quirks, their picadillos. Greg could drive me crazy. Sure. And I would talk to him about it. But like, that's crazy right there. Like, the showrunner could drive me crazy, and then I could say, Greg, you're driving me crazy. Like, I remember right. on the finale, there was this whole tangent, and I'm sure you'll remember this, about planting a tree. Yes. Andy sees a tree in the office and says, that tree- Planty. Planty. Yes, exactly. Planty. Planty has been in here all its life. We've got to set Planty free. And you guys go out to the parking lot, you plant planty, and then you go all the way back up to the office, and then the ending, and you hug, and then you go to the parking lot, and you go to your respective cars, and that's truly the end of leaving Dunder Mifflin. And um, I was writing notes down, and we were over time for the finale, and we were all, Greg was incredibly emotional, but doing that guy thing where you don't let on that you're emotional, so you're just kind of (laughs) weird, you know, like where you're just like erratic and sometimes irrational, but like what you really want to say is I'm really sad, but you're not going to say those words because you're a guy. So I was just taking out notes. We were too long and I'd already pitched to cut Planty. And I truly believed he said, okay, why don't we try cutting Planty? And I wrote it down and I did it. And it was better. 
because, not because that whole storyline wasn't interesting, but it was just almost just the physicality of being in the office, having Creed play the song, and then taking Planty down to the parking lot. And it was like a hiccup to something wonderful. You didn't need that hiccup. It just, it was just an unnecessary extra beat. As sweet and poignant as it was, there were already like 10 sweet and poignant moments that were happening with Creed's song. And right, right. too much poignancy diluted what was there. So I cut Planty. And Howard happened to be walking by, and I I showed it to Howard. And Greg's assistant, Alyssa, was also walking by, and I showed it to her. And they both separately went to Greg and said, oh, my God, it's so much better without Planty. And he came storming into my bay, and he said, you, you put that back in. How dare you? Da-da-da. I never You're sabotaging me. You're trying to get. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was at 100. I was like, bring it down. I said, first of all. I would never intentionally do something to sabotage you. That I was like, if you don't know that about me by now, I am just, I am not that person. Right. I'm just, I don't even think I could sabotage someone if right. I tried, like if that was my goal. I said, you created this show. I am here to service what you created and help you realize what you want. And he calmed down. <laughs> like he, I was like, right. so first let's get this paranoia <laughs> out. I said, they happened to be walking by, which was true on both counts. They happened to be by, and that would happen all the time, by the way. You oh, would sure. Come, we would just be walking by with our doors open because it would get insufferably hot. And interesting things happen. I would walk by people's bays and poke my head in. It was just a very inclusive environment. When people were waiting for their next scene and they were bored of being in their trailer, they'd come and show yes. me something. And it wasn't show me myself. It was like, hey, what you got that's funny? Show me a funny scene. Like, I just want to see what's going on on the show. Like, right. actors would come in all the time. So he said, okay, well, show me. And then I showed it to him, and he's like, okay, leave it out. <laughs> but like, it was like I had to talk him off a ledge. I think that's what makes him so interesting is he does clearly have, and I think it was for the better, ultimately, for the show, this, I don't want to say inferiority complex, but this, like, someone's always going to try to get one over on me kind of thing going on. Like, and you're just, you almost have to, like, like with every coworker and or boss, I think you kind of have to just to really get to know their psychology and you're working with this, you know, 800-pound gorilla, Greg Daniels, who's so, so, so smart and so funny that, like, to stand up to him requires some chutzpah on your own. Right, And right. it's kind of empowering. And I always did it. I didn't always, you know, I had confidence in what he had created, so I wanted to make sure it was the best version of what was written and acted. And I'd, I'd make good arguments, and then he'd make great counter-arguments. We have a really good discourse to get to Locke, and I think that was also very unique and special. You know, I always have Greg in my head when I'm directing because I heard his opinion on everybody else's, you know, as an editor, I heard what he thought of every director and he thought the world of many. And then like, sometimes he'd be like, how could they not have gotten that? Like, and I always in my mind, like, let's just do one more, like thinking like, what didn't I get? What would Greg be like? How come they could not gotten that? You know, I always want to have that right. showrunner in the back of my head saying, and that showrunner's voice, because Greg was my first, is always Greg. Right. Did you feel anything? Um, I mean, you were the only woman editor. Was that a thing for you? Did you no. feel? No. If anything, like, I remember, like, so much personal stuff going down for me. Jenna coming into my office, shutting the door and being like, this is what you need to do. <laughs> like, just giving it to me. No nonsense. I mean, if anything, I feel like. Um, gender was just not even an issue. And, you know, when people saw that there was a problem, it was such a close-knit group that people 
actually did something about it. Like they didn't right. just like sit and let you like kind of fester in a corner. <laughs> they were right. like, hey, let me poke you. Yeah. Let me help you. Um, yeah. I think in editing, I wish more women directors had been there. I wish it wasn't just me, Mindy, and Jen. There were three women directors and we were all in-house. Right? Denny came. There was one woman director. There were a few more. Den- but before, before your time. I will say, and I mean, this is not to besmirch anybody, and I'm not trying to be controversial. And you've heard, like, yeah, how wonderful. I, of course. I will say, I just don't think in 2004, people were thinking like this. Like, yes. I just don't think it was, it was right. like, here's your, here's your stable. Here's the people. They do comedy. Right. Go. But that said, I will speak to the writer's room. The writer's room was conspicuously lack of diversity, homogenous white guys from Harvard. Like, right. that's just a, and when I got there, Ellie said, hey, my sister's a writer. I feel weird. Would you give her work to Paul, who is the showrunner then? And I said, Paul, your male to female ratio in the writer's room is abysmal. And right. this is really, I read this. It's a one, it's about a dog committing suicide in a pool. <laughs> it was really funny. And I was like, this is Carrie Kemper. It's Ellie's sister, but it's good. Like, don't let that, you know, don't let that nepotism scare you off. And he hired We, we had no yeah. nepotism I issues know. on our I show. Know. Please. So bad. Really? Come on. I know, I know. That said, he interviewed her. It was good, you know, because that would have been a hard thing if she hadn't been able to write. Right. But it got better as it got And I do think that it was just like, I don't think there was malice. I think that's the way it happens in every writer's room. And right. every and it's like, hey, I got a show. The people I trust came out of school with me. Oh, I just happened to go to Harvard and write for Lampoon. I don't think it's ma- malicious. Like Conan O'Brien's like, hey, Greg, come out. I'm working on this great show called The Simpsons. Right. You should really check it out. Then King of the Hill. Then, you yeah. know, I, I don't think it's an agenda. I'm just glad that um, it got better over the course of the years. Yeah. What we talked about this a little bit, but I I don't want to miss it if there's something. What specifically made editing The Office harder than a traditional show? Um, I think it was the volume. So let's start with the volume. The scripts were long, so I think you were. I think you'd have like seven days to complete your cut. So you figure if it's a forty-page script, which more and more often they were, you were cutting a forty-minute assembly or editor's cut. And then from that, there were just so many steps to get it to time. And cutting 20 minutes out of a 40-minute show is, it's kind of bonkers. I mean, that's why I think right. the NBC.com came up, The Accountants and all of those great spinoffs, which at the time, webisodes were great. I mean, we do webisodes and deleted scenes. Right. Like, I mean, it was, you could use the word overshooting. I mean, I liked it because I remember Ed was once saying like, this is crazy that we're shoot. This is crazy. This is what we're doing. This is not fair. We were working us to the bone. <laughs> like it's not, it's not normal. But it it made the show better because we had so many different. Like I remember there was a storyline. It was Jim and Pam had a silent fight, and it was established. You track it throughout the day. It was really well done, well directed, well acted. And at the end of the day, Jim or Pam, I can't even remember at this point says, I'm really sorry. And they hold hands in the parking lot as they walk to their car. And it's resolved. Or I don't even know that anyone apologizes. I think it's just looks. And no one will ever know that storyline. You know, like all these, I mean, that one that one didn't even make it to deleted scenes. And wow. no, it was really good. Like there were so many good 
CDEF storylines that right. you never got to see. Right. Yeah, they're somewhere buried in avid um, archives. So you did an interview with, on The Ringer, and you said, when you do documentaries, you have to be comprehensive and watch everything that the subject has ever done. And you said subliminally, subliminally, <laughs> oh my God, it's Michael Scott. Subliminally, through osmosis, I was getting my comedy doctorate, watching the best of the best, comprehensively seeing everything they've ever done. So as a result, I kept working towards comedy. Um, was there anything in terms of comedy that you learned from The Office? I remember um, I had a quote board. I'll see if I can find it. Um, on my quote board, I don't, it was like a whiteboard, and um, I had one quote, and I never put who said what, but um, I'll tell you who it was. There was one. Uh, here it is. I do have it. I'll say it directly. I can pull some of that air out, and then it says there's a lot of comedy in that air. And it was me trying to get a show to time. And I said, I could, you know, rather than cut stuff, I can pull some air out. And it was Paul Lieberstein who's like, there's a lot of comedy in that air. And I think it's letting things breathe. It's just such a pacing issue. It's a dance. It's a rhythm. They say, if you, you know, if, if you're a good dancer, you'll be a good editor. Or you can't be a good editor unless you can dance. Because it's all pacing and rhythm. And that's so true. And that's why those reaction passes was like kind of gold for us. You know, just when a scene wasn't working, just anyone, I mean, there's the famous, uh, a gym every two seconds is like commenting for you and you're seeing, but I also liked it when it was coming from someone else's point of view. Jim was the great entree in the first few seasons, but I feel like everyone had their own particular take on the comedy, which would make that reaction that much more powerful, like going to Creed, oblivious. You know, that's just as funny. Like not like everyone's right. like, what's going on in there? And he's just like, he's mm, just you're not even yeah. paying attention. Like that's funny right. too. Right. I just found another picture of you and me. This is, and th I like this picture so much because this picture is us eating lunch together. Like yes. that's like, it was like high school, right? Yes. Like we're just sitting and we all, like you just sat down and ate with people. You know, that's not the norm on other shows. It just isn't. And, you know, we were there long enough that people went through big life stuff. Like, and not to get into too much detail, but I got divorced on The Office. And I can tell you, there's no other job I would have wanted to have been on during that hard time. You know, I remember going to a table read once and being like, Paul, I have to go to my therapist. And he was like, go, go, go. You know, you know like, just a given, like, just such a warm, welcoming, just a really, really, I think, from the top down. You know, you had Ken Quapis, Greg Daniels. Steve Carell. Right. So which one of those guys is a jackass that's going to make your life a living hell? <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just, yeah. You know, no, th those for are, sure. I mean, I barely worked with Ken. And after The Office, he kind of took me under his wing when I was starting to direct more and was just like, okay, you can do this. You know, and he would just like, I remember the first show, one of the first shows I got was a show called, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what it was called. Something men in the title. Anyway, it was canceled. But he was helping me prep. He was just like, okay, what's your biggest scene? Let's talk it through. Like, just really just kind, kind, kind. And like, same with Greg Daniels. I did a movie called Set It Up. He came in. The first person I wanted to show it to was Greg Daniels. Like, come into post. What's good? What's bad? There's this moment where these two are having this conversation. And it's like she, the girl is holding the guy to, to task for his bad acts. And 
Greg's like, you need to be in a close-up here. You need to see the moment where she changes her mind and she's letting him back in. He's so good. Like, he's just so good. He's like, you need to see her opening the door. And he was dead right. No one touched that scene after Greg came. That's so Which is crazy. really me, you know? Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. 
inside. So you start much like Matt Zone, Randall, them as camera people in reality, you're editing documentaries, you come on the office and then you start directing. You've talked about it a little bit up to now, but something that occurred to me, you know, you become a director from a very particular background, right? Like editing and assembling and post and Matt Sohn and Randall, like from a really from a camera perspective. But the thing that I remember is people on your side wanting to have conversations with actors about like how act, because that was something that was new. Right. Did you feel that as well? Yes. hundred percent. I remember Ken Quab is giving me some great advice. He said, everyone there has a job to do. Sound guys got to do sound, make sure it sounds good. Actors have to be true to their characters. Writers have to make sure the jokes are told correctly and the story is told. DPS to make sure everyone is on camera that should be, and it's blocked correctly along with the director. But he said, but the director's most important job is to represent the audience. And if the director doesn't get it, the director has to raise their hand and be the pain in the ass and say, this isn't working. And that nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants, everyone's going to look at you and be like, motherfucker, I want to go home to my family. Right. I don't want to do this. this is weird. Just, and I, I've had to like be, you have to be unpopular sometimes to do that. And I, it was such helpful advice, you know. And I remember I was, I was setting up a scene in Here Comes Trouble in the conference room. It was a party. And um, Rain came in and he was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't think I would be here. And I, we'd already we'd rehearsed it. And he's like, this isn't working. So he's like, I think I should do this. this, this, this. He gave his opinion. And I was like, okay, let's do that. And we started. And it didn't work at all. And we had to go back to the way I had it done. <laughs> and and it was like, oh, I had done my homework. I had a reason for, I'd really worked. Like I, I take prep very seriously. And I understand why Rain came at me because he didn't, I didn't, ha- he didn't have confidence in me. <laughs> like why should he? It was my second episode of directing TV ever. Right. And so just learning that dance of like when to speak up, when to stand back. And then slowly gain trust. I mean, that's everything is gaining trust and then proving myself. Like, so I remember there was a scene with John and he was walking out with Jenna and and he's like, I think we should, you know, John a lot of the times had really good ideas. I wish he came up with them before we lit. Right. He'd always come up with such, he, it was like he would dial in when it was actually the cameras up and act, wait, Jim would never do this. And we would always go, you're absolutely right. Brown University, why didn't you come back and bring that Brown University education to the rehearsal? Right, <laughs> Where right. was your head in the rehearsal? Right. So um, he's like, I think it would work better this way. And I said, Let, great, let's try that and and let's do John's way. And then he did it a couple of times. He's like, your way was better. So like it was just like finding that like dance of like working with people, gaining trust. And then after that, I felt like, okay, I could do this. But I remember the first day was like starting with Talking Heads. It was a very gentle entree into directing and Paul would come for every rehearsal, and there were lots of safety nuts for me that first week. But I remember halfway through the day of my first day ever directing, already like 200 questions are lobbed your way that morning. Right. And I was like, I can do this. I can do this. It was lunch. I was like collecting myself. 
And I was like, but why would anyone want to do this? Like, I was literally thinking, and then by the end of the day, I turned the corner and I was like, I want to do this. Like, but it was that halfway mark was like brutal, kind of like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And then coming around and being like, oh, not only can I, I want to. And that's what you do now. And that's what I, I mean, I never stopped loving editing. I love directing, but I really, there's something, there's, you're building a world in an edit bay and um, writers create out of the blue sky, but I feel like editors are like sculptors that work with negative space and they shave it away and it's a different kind of writing. And I think there's something wonderful about seeing what something can be and realizing it. Like I felt that way so strongly. I was so proud of the finale of the series. There's this one Pam talking head that like I can't wait to show my daughter when she's older where she says, you know, this has been such an amazing experience and the documentary has been so invaluable. If I could talk to my younger self, I wish I could have told her to seize the moment sooner and just stand up for yourself and go for it. Like it was so powerful. I just even thinking about it makes me like misty because it's just like as a woman, you were just not seeing that on TV, you know, and it was such a powerful message. So it, it was a really, that was a really special, just the whole ending was sad and special and it's all a blur because we were also pulling all-nighters <laughs> when we were doing it, but right. it was so worth it. And I think we all knew when it came to an end that one, it was the right time, and two, that we'd all been part of something extraordinary. You're proud of how we ended. Oh my God, yeah. Are you? Yeah. I mean, the last two. I mean, ARM could have been... AARM could have been the finale as well. I feel like both episodes are so strong. But like having Steve come back was great. That was such a special day too, you yeah. know, when he came for the wedding. And you guys didn't know. Did you guys know? Some, I, some, some people knew. Yeah. Obviously the studio didn't know. Yeah. The network and studio were pissed. Yeah. We hid the dailies. We went to another. We outsourced them. They never knew until it aired. They right. saw it the morning it aired. They were so pissed. They were pissed? They were so pissed. <laughs> Really? They were pissed. Well, what, we didn't want them to promo it, and it would have. You know he would have been in the promo. Right. And Greg had such a guilty conscience, and he's like, all these people are asking if Steve's coming back, and, and we have to lie and say no. And he's like, Ken, don't you feel like an awful person for lying to everybody? And Ken's like, not at all. I feel, I feel nothing. <laughs> I don't care. I, he didn't want them to ruin it. Right. So what we did was right. <laughs> That's so amazing. Yeah, it was great. And you won, you won an Emmy. For that episode, yeah. That Dave episode. and I won an Emmy. So I was cutting the first half, and Dave was cutting the second half, and then Greg swapped us halfway through, and he said, Claire, you finish, and Dave, you start with the beginning. And it was like a mind fuck, because that's the air. You don't, you, you, I'd seen all the dailies, I'd seen every inch right. of it, and then you're just swapping it out. And it was crushing, but then at the, it was great, you know, like fresh eyes and everything. So I think that was really great. And Dave and I at that point were just like yin and yang. We were very, very new, very much what each other's strengths were. And he just, he'd been there since season one. So, I mean, he just was such a, he's an encyclopedia. He's so much better at me. At, like people will throw out a certain episode. like, okay, what season? Like he just knows. Right. That said, I also haven't gone back and watched them in a long time. Yeah. Like for, for me, some would bring up some serious emotions like Niagara or something like that was, such a great episode to edit. It was wonderful because there was music. Like, I also cut the scene in arm, even though Dave and I would share. Like, so if I was ahead, I would just take some scenes from him. And I was I was good at doing, I'd done all these, like, documentaries where you had to do these opening montages. So for the Jim and Pam 
the video that Jim gives Pam, I cut that to right. Snow Patrol uh, and Dave's episode because I, I I like doing those things and he hates doing those things <laughs> and um and I got to do the Niagara the dancing thing to the Chris Brown song yes and that was really fun and I remember getting to use Randall's footage that he shot I feel like on Super Eight. At the in falls. Niagara, yeah, they yeah. went to Niagara Falls, and I think he, sh I know he shot film. Yeah, I don't think it was Super Sixteen, but it could have been Super Sixteen. Yeah, I mean, no, it was probably Super Sixteen. It was not shitty enough to be Super Eight. And I remember seeing a shot, and so this was very much like cutting a documentary because they didn't speak. So um, there's the last scene of Niagara where Jim and Pam are on the bow of the boat, and he puts his arm around her, and he looks right into the camera, and he just like it's not even like cocky; it's just like sweet, like I got her. You know, and Jim, uh, John and Jenna came into my bay to see it. They were like, we need to see this show. We need to sign off on this big, right. big one. And after that, I'd like turned around and they're bawling. And I was like, yes, because oh. that's all you want to do is make people cry. Like <laughs> you work in comedy, but like for the poignant moments, all you want is to make people cry. It was awesome. It was awesome. Them coming in there and seeing, and we kind of shared this and no one else will know that, you know, right. but it was really a sweet moment to be a part of in their journey, you know, and just almost be just a witness to it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Um, put on the headphones. I just want to play one thing for you here. This is from the finale that you cut. I thought it was weird when you picked us to make a documentary. But all in all, I think an ordinary paper company like Dunder Mifflin was a great subject for a documentary. There's a lot of beauty in ordinary things. Isn't that kind of the point? So Greg, having written that, clearly he thinks that's what the point was. What did you think it was? Of The Office? Yeah. I don't know if he talked about this, but he told me that whenever he was stymied or stuck, the moral compass of the show was was Pam. And whenever he was stuck, and what would, what would Pam do here? He would actually say, what would Suzanne do here? Did he tell you this? No. Oh, it's it's like the best love letter. I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I thought that was like the most romantic thing to say. You know, he loves his wife so much, he put her in Pam. He basically created this whole series. You think it's Michael Scott, but it's also Pam. She is the moral compass of the show. And she is the person that you you want to aspire to be as good as and be good enough to be with if you're Jim. For me, the whole series is all about growing up. And when a character grows up, they don't need to be in the office. I also think that Michael Scott, for me, I was nostalgic for because his story, his arc is a beautiful one. You know, he is a person whose mom is screening out his phone calls at night when he's all alone in his office with no friends or anyone to hang out, no family to go home to. And you see his pain. And then the next morning he comes in and he acts like a blowhard buffoon. And he tries to force his entire workforce into being his family and friends. Mm. And I forgive him every moment of it because I was led into his vulnerability and I saw his cracks and I understand why he's doing what he's doing and I'm rooting for him. And so over the course of it, you see each season, he grows a little more. And by season seven, he is finally worthy of Holly, worthy of a family He's grown, he's become the best version of himself, and I'm rooting for him and Holly. 
So for me, it was such a clean exit. You know, it was so well-deserved, so well-told, right. so that I, I wanted to see that journey in others, you know, and, and it was nice that there was more space for other people to have those same goals. And it was nice to see Jim and Pam go beyond the fairy tale and see like, whoa, there's bumps in marriage. Like that was really, that was great. I liked being able to service more of the characters as a result. But I do think that that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. It is giving equal time to lots of people who don't normally get, I mean, like just the very fact that I said the moral compass is a woman. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but there's not parody yet, you know? So it's nice that she got that part in the show. And then it was nice that everyone got their stories told, like what 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 primetime show had some of the heartfelt moments that Phyllis got, you know? Right. When how many assistant casting directors get to go on, become on a network comedy star? Like, I mean, it's just crazy. Like the the trajectory and the impact and the humanity. I keep coming back to that word humanity, but it really is a utopic society. And I think that it's not shocking that kids are gravitating towards that today because I think we see just the opposite every day in the news. And it's it's so disheartening, you know. And I want to go live in Scranton, in the world of the office. That's the appeal now, yeah, I think. I think so. I mean, it's not about getting rich. It's not about being popular. It's about being happy and being kind to others. I mean, on very few other shows do you see people being so kind to each other. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I can see why people kind of go to the church of the office um, when Pam is having a vulnerable moment with Dwight, and then he says, you're on your period. <laughs> you know, it's like he undercuts. It's like you're getting to all those, like, feelings, and then, of course, it's a comedy, so it's under. But, like, he's really trying. He's a jackass, but right. he's really trying. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. The intention is there. Yeah. And you're kind of re- you're like, oh. He can almost do this. (laughs) Right. Almost. Almost. Not quite. Yeah. It wouldn't be a comedy if he could. Right. I'll just tell you this weird thing that I've settled on here in terms of that, that your brain would tell you that the more general would be the more universal. But with The Office, the characters were drawn so specifically and that ultimately that is the thing that I think has made it more universal, that it's actually so So specific. specific. Yeah. Instead of pleasing all the people, you're just being true to character building and telling a story. Which ultimately does make it appeal to more people. people It's counterintuitive. Yeah, but I mean, I, I always get so frustrated just in working on anything new where you are underestimating the sophistication of the audience. They are smart and they can sniff out phoniness so quickly, especially now in like peak TV, you know, people are just so smart. Right. And I think The Office was ahead. It was 10 years ahead of its time. (laughs) It just was. The American Office. I mean, in the British Office. Well, and now maybe that's it. Maybe it was 10 years ahead of its time. And now, because as you said before, the show is bigger now than it it was. It is, 100%. Like, people will be like, I watched every episode. I see your name. I felt like they're ki- they're watching it with their kids my peers are watching they never watched my peers didn't watch it when i worked on it right. but they're watching it now with their children right well thank you so much for coming to talk to me sure this has been great i i am so happy for you and your success oh thank you and you're so smart and thoughtful and 
I just so appreciate and care for you. And, and oh, thank you, Brian. Yeah. That's awfully nice. Right back at you. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you for thinking of me. No. All, one thing I didn't mention is that, you know, we still work. We still work in this town. And I see people once in a blue moon. I'll bump into um, Greg, the PA, or, um, you know, I work with Danny Chun from time to time, or a writer that we've worked with. But a lot of times on sets, you know, you'll see someone. I've worked with Kelly. And you go up and you're like, okay, who's the so-and-so and the so-and-so? Like, who's like Matt Stone over here? And like, who, you know, who's the like no-nonsense and who can I talk to about this? And it's just like a shorthand. I call it going to the University of Greg Daniels because we all went to school with under him. He was our prof- master professor principal. And then we all shot out and went elsewhere but remembered each other. And, oh, that's my schoolmate over there. So I, that's the person I have a shorthand with. And when I see that familiar face, it's like coming home. And I just never, I never, never, never take the office for granted. I don't take any of those years for granted. Every day I walked into that office, I was aware of how good I had it, how good the people, how protected we were, how wonderful it was to be on that stage away from everything, and how kind everybody was to everybody. Even when they were in a shitty mood, people were not jackasses. They just weren't. It just wasn't tolerated, which is wonderful. Yeah. Oh my God, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, like you're, I mean, I forget that you're real smart. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how amazing is she? Thank you, Claire for your wisdom, and for everything you brought to the show. I am so happy to be an alumni of the University of Greg Daniels, and and I love that we got to have this, this little class reunion together. From all of us here at The Office Deep Dive, especially me, since I'm talking, have a great week, and we will be back next Tuesday with another brilliant woman from The Office, but this time, oh, She is someone who was in front of the camera. See you next week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producers are Emily Carr and Diego Tapia. And our intern is Hannah Harris. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.